Thanks for listening to audio from Rockhaven Church. For more information on our ministry, please visit us at our website at www.rockhavenchurch.org. But if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. And while you were doing that, I would ask, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much. We remain thankful that you are a God who invites us to behold and believe and trust in you. And what's more, you continue to share with us from your word, your perfect word, your character, our need, and what it is that you would do with us. Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would lead and guide our hearts and minds that we might, yes, grow deeper in our relationship with you, but that we would grow ever more confident in your good news to share with others the difference that you are making, that as you invite us to behold and believe, that we too might in turn share with others to behold and believe in your Son, Jesus. And so this morning, have your way with us, leading and guiding our hearts and minds. And Father, help me too, not to be distracted but to concentrate on what it is that you want to do and where you want to take us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're saying, wait a minute. You said open up to 2 Kings chapter 18, and the last we looked, the last we looked, we were in 2 Kings chapter 8, kind of wrapping those things up. And yes, this is true. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm not going to go through but I, uh, this morning, uh, though I could in rambling fashion and really get us all lost. But what I want to do is focus uh, where we're going and what we're looking at, a uh, reminder why we began the book of First and Second Kings, and what God wants to do and shape and work within us. I will confess to you that we're pinched up against time as we're moving into our fall launch where we believe God is calling us to go in studying what we believe together, and then the difference that that makes in our lives and in our ministry individually and corporately as a family. Now, part of the reason why we're jumping nine chapters is because some of what we're reading is really difficult to preach. You can read it on a Tuesday, but if I start telling you, then this guy became a uh, this guy became king in Judah, and this guy became king in Israel, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and his reign was this long, and his dad was this old, and then his kid came on and he died. How, I mean, I can only preach that a couple of different ways. But that's what we hear over and over and over again in the line of these kings. Now, occasionally, there's a moment where something fantastic happens, and so I really want to encourage you to read those. Now, in order to set us up for what's going to happen in 2 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to fill in some gaps. Now, you can make special note of this if you're one of those note takers. You multitasking much better than I am, can try and follow along with me, though I promise I'll muddle something up as we go. But as you study it, as you look at it, please know that there isn't a single detail that isn't important. Did you hear me? Just because I'm not reading it or just because I'm brushing over it doesn't mean that it is not important. Case in point, certainly some of what we will read in 2 Kings, and like I said, I know, just be patient with me, 18 is where we're going to land, some of what we would read in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, and 11, and 12, and 13, is the fulfillment of what God began 
in 1 Kings chapter 19, where God said to Elijah, we've been studying Elisha, but his predecessor, Elijah, when he was alone and in fear of his life from Ahaz, Ahab and Jezebel, God spoke to Elijah, and he told Elijah this, The Lord said, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nintenshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Saphat, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. Now listen, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Wait a minute. We read about Hosea last week. Yes, we did. Okay? And we haven't read about Jehu yet. Right, we're going to, just as a highlight. But as we go through these things, this was all brought up a generation ago. Before Elijah left the earth, God said to him to do these things. And here is why. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is unrelenting. His word, his character, who he is, and his purposes never change. Never. We've gone through and we've studied so much over the last number of weekends that again, and maybe it's just me, but now we're in 2 Kings chapter 9, chapter 18. We're looking back and we're like, 1 Kings, when did we even look at that? It feels like it was so very long ago. And in some ways it was. It was multiple kings of go. Elisha, at this place and point in time of his life, is getting much aged when he began following Elijah as a younger man. We've had all kinds of comings and goings and and brutalities and calls to repentance, and it is seeming to many in the story or the account that God has forgotten, but God has not forgotten. You might even look at this account and say, now wait a minute, I don't even remember reading anywhere where Elijah did what God told him to. Did Elijah, did Elijah anoint Hazael? It was news to Hazael when Elisha told him he would be king. Elijah's not around. Did he secretly anoint Jehu, as we're going to read? No. But that mantle of responsibility and that ministry went from Elijah to Elisha. And Elisha fulfilled the word of the Lord that God had decreed should occur in accordance with his plans and purposes. God has not relented. Generation upon generation, God's plan and his design for our lives does not change. He is inviting us to behold who he is as God and believe in that and then have our lives transformed to remain ever faithful to following him and growing and being used by him. 
Um, again, uh, just as a point of historical reference, in chapter 9, Jehu is anointed king. Kind of interestingly enough, and I just say this to set the table for you to go in there, because Elisha sends one of his servants. And what's fascinating about it is he says, I need you to go. I need you to anoint Jehu as king. Do it in a different room. And then as soon as you say what I tell you to say, run for your life. And so he does exactly what he's told. And then these guys come out and say, hey, what the crazy dude say to you? You know, why is he crazy? Because he comes running, he goes in the room to meet with you and he comes running out like he's crazy. And then Jehu tells them exactly what God had told them. And it proceeds, proceeds to remove the wickedness and evil residual effects of Ahab and Jezebel and their work. And so as you go through, you will see all of those things, including, as we read a long time ago, Ahab has passed away. Jezebel is still alive. You go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19, chapter 20, but we see in 1 King, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30, that when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. This is that same wicked, awful woman. She is the one who was plotted in schemed, somehow thinking in her mind that she could remove the God of Israel by getting rid of all of his prophets. That if she removed the prophets, then God and his message would be destroyed as well. That she could have it her way. She's been in hiding all this time. And somewhere in the back of my mind, this wicked little schemer, I think when Elijah Elijah left the earth, she probably thought, Dita day, he's gone. But now she has to manipulate her way through all of these other kings. That's not working so well. And the power of the ministry of Elisha, God's man, is growing. She's in hiding. She's in hiding in a tower for her life, trying to figure out what she might do to continue in her manipulation. Again, the invitation of God is unrelenting, still in repentance, and none from her. She has painted her eyes. Look with me in verse 3. She painted her eyes and adorned her hair. Boy, she's put on her best face. And then she peeks her cute little wicked face out the window. And she hollers down to Jehu. Hello. <laughs> right? <laughs> Batting her eyelashes. I, I don't know. She doesn't, she doesn't say hello. She says, is it peace? Are you a murderer or a master? It just can't happen. The wickedness is coming out of her. Jehu just simply hollers up to the window, who's on my side, who? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he, they just kind of, oh, we are. And here's what he says. He says, well, then throw her down. So they picked her up and threw her out the window. Splat. And then, what? Did I say that out loud? And then just as God had decreed, right, everything that God had said happened just the way that he had decreed that. Jehu and his work destroying the prophets of Baal, uh, we have different kings that begin to reign. Interestingly enough, in these different times, we continue to jump back and forth between Israel and Judah, Judah and Israel. We see some kings aren't quite as bad as other kings. In chapter 12, uh, we are introduced to Jehoash, uh, and he begins to reign, and he does some pretty good things that are right in the Lord's eyes. But in verse 3, it says, nevertheless, he did uh, the high places were not taken away, and the people continued to sacrifice and make idols 
uh, in those high places. There wasn't the fulfillment of everything that God had asked of them in those places. So they were they themselves following, but the nation as a whole was still empowered to do whatever it was that they wanted to do. And so the nation of, excuse me, the children of God, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, right, called to, to, to be identified as those who would hear his word, obey, and trust him. Independently, kings were doing what they wanted to do, and the people were also doing what they wanted to do. And part of that, again, another study in the time of good leadership. In chapter 13, Elisha dies. He is removed, and it's the last we hear of that prophet, except for some amazing stories still associated with his ministry that I would encourage you to look at, as I said before, in your own time where God would lead you. All of it very important, but Elisha dies. We will be introduced to more prophets as we go, but as we spend time studying the people that God is using and looking to, in the time that we have, I want to make mention of something very important that is going to occur, and Joel and I have both mentioned it in our sermon series. Even though God is unrelenting, and even though God has sent prophet upon prophet, nations will, excuse me, the nation of Israel having more bad kings than good, they will ultimately be defeated, captured, and removed to Assyria. That's coming. So serious is the unrelenting call of God to repent, to obey, to hold fast, trust, and follow, that if they don't do it, he will let them be captured by another country and become servants. We have that account in chapter 17. Where's Joel? Hey, calling an audible. All right, I said open your Bibles to chapter 18. Go to 17. Just flip back one. Don't laugh at me, Tammy. Okay? We have that account in chapter 7. You see, in, in chapter 18, there's an abbreviation of this account, but in chapter 17, the whole thing's laid out for us, okay? Chapter 17, verse 6. In the ninth year, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That is to say, he captured the Israelites, and they took them away to Assyria. Look with me at verse 7. And this occurred because... The people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and Pharaoh the king. Here's what they did, and this is where we're going to jump a little bit. In verse 7, they feared other gods. Verse 8, they walked in the customs of the other nations. Verse 9, they did secretly against the Lord their gods things that were not right. Verse 10, they made off, excuse me, verse 11, they made offerings in the high places. Uh, the end of verse 11, provoking the Lord to anger. Verse 12, they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And they did it anyway. So we sit here and say, well, I didn't know. <laughs> they knew. They knew and they were told over and over and over again. And what God said to them was, you shall not do this. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law and all that I have commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by the servants, the prophets. But they didn't. Why? As a summation, you can circle certain words in the following verses. Verse 14, they were stubborn. Verse 14, they did not believe. Verse 15, they despised. Continuing on, they went after false idols. They themselves became false. They followed the nations that were around them. Verse 16, they abandoned all the commandments. Verse 17, they burned their sons and daughters. Verse uh, Still in verse 17, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped up their idols. They would not follow the Lord. They didn't do those things because of the preceding list of their character traits. Stubbornness, unwillingness, cause, uh, excuse me, the convenience, the uh, popular opinion, the not willing to stand apart, all of these things that they were doing. And again, another sermon, another time, another place. But these were constantly the warnings. And so what happens is, because of this, God's anger, God's anger has left them to be captured by Assyria and imprisoned for 70 years. And Israel is gone. And at the end of that verse 18, none was left but the tribe of Judah. God's word and his invitation, his wisdom, his right, are unchangeable. You don't Yes, I agree with that young man. Since everything that God does is in and by his design perfect, there is no reason why God's word, perfect, would ever change. If in accordance with his wisdom, perfect, God requires us to align our lives, he's not going to change culturally circumstantial because we somehow have found a new enlightened wisdom that would bring us to some other place in a different way. God doesn't change. and He can't change in those things. But what is invited is for us to be transformed, letting go of our own methodologies of things, letting go of our own understanding, and, and in trust, obeying this perfect wisdom. God will raise up such a king in Judah. His name is Hezekiah. Look with me uh, at chapter 18, verse 1. In the third year of Hoshi's son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, not Ahab, Ahaz, King of Judah began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Hey, that's pretty good, uh, that's pretty good reign. I mean, when you think about it, when we look at all of the other kings that have come and gone at this time, the fact that he pulls off 25 years, pulls off 25 years, and they're pretty good. Uh, verse 3, 
Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel made offerings to it. It was called the Nashton. And he trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among all those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandment of the Lord that God commanded him through Moses, and the Lord was with him wherever he went out. Why? <laughs> why, why, was, why was God with this man all the time? Well, it was God's like, oh, oh, hey, I'll hang out with you. God desires this for everyone. Hezekiah held fast to God, and God was with him everywhere he went. This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. It takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God created Adam and Eve. And in the Garden of Eden, he put one tree, just one, one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he put it there, and he said, see this tree? Don't eat from it. And they're, okay. But the enemy comes along. And he takes advantage of their natural inclinations. And gentlemen, if you had an extra hour and a half, I'd torture you through this entire story. If you think that we fell into sin because of Eve, you're wrong. We fell into sin because men are wimps, spiritual wimps. Standing next to his wife, he should have stood, he should have taken a shovel and cut that sticking snake's head off. That's what I would do. But he, he just stands there in abject silence. Before, his, before this event, began, he tried to create a rule. Somehow if he could create this rule, it's somehow some way. Instead of explaining the character of God to his beloved, he just stands there in abject silence. He tries to create rules instead of explaining why it is that God has called us to trust him. Eve falls into her own demise, making sure that, you know, self-rationalizing, bringing all of these different things. But the fact of the matter is, is God put a tree in the garden and begged them one question, and all the they knew it was all so very good. He begged them, just trust me. The basis of their relationship was trust, and they broke it. And now, instead of knowing only good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what knowledge did they have? All good. What were they introduced to? They only gained evil, which is what selfishness does. They gained evil. And from that moment on, from that moment on, when we look to the character of God, right? And that trust and that relationship is broken. And what would most of us do? When someone breaks our heart and they break our trust, we generally stomp our fist or stomp our foot, swing our fist, and cry out, Never will I ever let you again. And we assume that that's what God is like. You continue to read on the story. Even in that broken trust, you will see the character of God hiding, which is what sin does. Fear, guilt, and shame. They hide in the garden. And God comes to them. And he cries out to them, where are you? And right there, it shows you the heart of God. The same God that we're reading about in 2 Kings chapter 18. That it has always been his invitation. 
to fellowship with his creation if they would hold fast to him. Sin destroy that. And so then we get an account through all the pages of God's redemptive story and thread continuing to reveal his character in the invitation and his call. And I know I'm, I'm grossly overst- uh, understating these profound things. But what God has done in his call and in his invitation is to the same point that he does in all of us to draw us to himself. If we will remain faithful to follow his commands and not be like the nation of Israel who were stubborn, didn't believe, despised God's wisdom, went after other false idols into which you say, I don't have any other false idols. Let's stop and take a look at just this one picture. You know that spot it says that he removed the high pillars and cut down the asherah. I was going to spend a whole long time talking about that. I made mention of it before that uh, Joe, uh, one of the other kids went ahead and he was following the Lord, but he didn't cut down the high places. Hezekiah's taking it to the nth. He's going to make sure that all of this stuff that doesn't belong to the Lord as the king of Judah, he's going to remove it all so that there is no stumbling block whatsoever. And he's going to do it so that even those people who don't know, it's like, hey, wait a minute, this is where I worship the little golden grasshopper. Not today. The altar's gone. He got rid of it. Okay, then he takes it into their own house. Did you catch that in verse four? He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. How long ago was that? Trust me, 800 years. This little bronze serpent has lasted 800 years. And in the full explanation of that story, what happened is the nation of Israel, after they left Egypt, right, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're starting to moan and bemoan God's character and who he is. So God's, right, plague of snakes, plague of snakes, bites people and they die. And they get sick and then they die. And in the midst of all of that, right, God tells Moses, the stubborn people, what's to be done? And he says, God says to Moses, take and make a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, put it in the ground, and if anyone would just turn and look at it, turn and look at it, they'll be healed. That's, that was the deal. This is that serpent. That's a, excuse me. This is that serpent on a bronze serpent on a stick. It's still alive. It's still here. It survived 800 years. Now, God used it in an intended purpose in their exodus. It doesn't do those same things today, but they like, we have found the staff of power. And instead of worshiping the creator, instead of worshiping the God who who shared this kindness with them, they've begun to worship the staff itself. It's It's become an idol. They're burning incense to it. And so Hezekiah said, no, we don't have any room for for idol worship here. He takes this 800-year-old relic and he breaks it apart. He breaks it up. Nope, no more of that. As a reminder to us that we too ought to make sure that we are removing the idols from our lives. You say you have no idols. We do have idols. We make idols out of leaders in the world and leaders in the churches. We make idols out of education where we pursue all kinds of earthly wisdom in place of God's wisdom. We make idols out of customs, habits, and traditions within ministries when we look or declare that certain things in certain churches are more holy than others. And we make all kinds of different idols out of the different forms of worship. We have no end of the idols to which we worship because the greatest idol that must be dealt with is the idol of self. 
The sole point behind all that God does is to draw us to himself. That is his constant invitation. We cannot stop at the means. Rather, we must pursue the creator. We must pursue God. In answer to the question, where are you? God is really asking, will you trust me? In answer to the question, will you obey, is to say, will we trust his wisdom? He says, where are you? Which shows his heart and his desire that he desires to spend time with us. That didn't change when he sent his son. In John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, you would not believe. Now how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man. Hello? Listen. As Jesus continued to speak, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Did you hear me? We look at God and we think we have to make these other idols because he's mad, because he's angry, because his ways are too hard, because his wisdom is too much, because it doesn't apply to the culture and the world that we live in. When all we must do is at the end of ourselves realize that those are the very excuses we need to repent of, to behold And the magnificent grace and gift of God that he sent his son not to condemn us, but to give us life everlasting. He did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the only son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Hezekiah heeded the word of God and his invitation to behold and to believe in his rightful character. And then trusting in that rightful character began to follow the precepts of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. And such to the delight that he held fast to him, growing ever more in his character and exploring the wonderful gifts that God has given him. And he prospered. We'll continue to look at that story. But it's the same thing that God has asked of us. It's the reason why God has given us this gift of communion, to behold and believe, to remember 
just like the nation of Israel had an opportunity, right, for a bronze serpent on a stick to just, to just make an action of their life, to trust God, to, to say, all right, he said if I'd look, that I would believe. And there's no power in the serpent, there's no power in the staff, but there was power by God to a heart that would repent and turn and believe. And so it is the same with us. Even if the original cross in which Jesus hung upon existed today, it would need to be destroyed if people began to worship it and to burn incense to it. Because that was not the point. The point of the cross was the Son of God who hung upon it and said, Behold, I've done what none of you can do. Will you believe? Why? Because I desire a relationship with you. And I do this to destroy that so that we might walk together. When we come to this time of remembrance, that's what we remember. That God sent his son, that we might receive life. And what's more to remain in that life is to listen to his word, apply it to our life, and unwavering devotion to following him. Hold fast. The guys would come forward. I'm going to confess something. For a long time in my life, I didn't think much of this idolatry thing. We read it in the Bible, and I'm like, oh, pfft, that ain't me. I, I, don't, I don't make little carven images. I don't make any little wooden thing and bow down and worship that in my bedroom. But the fact of the matter is, is we have these idols. They must be destroyed. Anything that we trust outside of God must be let go of. I say that because the world that we live in has abandoned godly wisdom. I shared those statistics with you. And the very reason why we've abandoned godly wisdom is because we're trusting something else. So in the proving of our trust of God, our Monday through Sunday, an opportunity to ask ourselves, what does God's word think, say? What does God think? And then base our decisions on that. He's given us this gift. May we be found faithful to abide, to trust, to follow, and hold fast. Thank you very much for being here. God bless you all. Have a good week.